with you and all. Welcome to another Buds on Film podcast. I am Scott Morrison and I'm joined today by Drew Savendale. Greetings. Craig Eastman is on assignment. So we have a lovely podcast for you today full of a random selection of films with no fixed agenda. This is our first intermission podcast of 2017 and it is going out on the day of Donald Trump's inauguration so it may well be our last (laughs) it's uh, maybe the last podcast ever created we're delighted that you chose to see the fiery Trumpocalypse through with us in your ears we'll just dive straight into our first film that we'll be covering today which is A Monster Calls Drew, why don't you tell us a little bit about that one? Catalan director Jay Bayona brings us A Monster Calls from a screenplay by Patrick Dowd based on his own novel, a tale of a troubled adolescent boy struggling to come to terms with his mother's terminal illness. Connor O'Malley, played by Lewis McDougall, lives with his mother in a small English town and when he is not caring for his mum, played by Felicity Jones, or worrying about her death, or stressing about being forced to live with his strict and emotionally distant grandmother, Sigourney Weaver, he's being tormented and bullied at school. All in all, he's having a pretty miserable time of it. Unsurprisingly, he has horrible nightmares as a result, but his dreams also conjure up a sage creature to help him, a walking, talking, monstrous yew tree, voiced by Liam Neeson, a powerful and literal force of nature, who will tell him three tales to help him make sense of, and then confront his fears and his demons. The yew tree is a fantastic, and I think for younger children a frightening creation, bringing to mind a fire-filled ent from Lord of the Rings, and brought to life by a good, though not great, performance by Liam Neeson, who I have often found to be a little flat in solely vocal performances in the past. The one problem is, though, that the tree has to carry much of the dialogue, and therefore the story, and in the cinema at least, Neeson's voice is modulated so low and with so much added bass rumble that much of what he says is difficult, if not impossible, to make out. This is probably not the wisest move to make for a character that has to give a lot of exposition. <laughs> and if it was difficult for me, a native English speaker, to make it out, imagine how difficult it was for the Mexican that I saw this with. It's a strange move to make a character so difficult to actually hear. But anyway, let me return to the story at hand. At the conclusion of the three stories that the youth tree is going to tell him, he expects Connor to learn the moral of the stories and tell him a fourth story in return, in which he will admit his fears to himself and, hopefully, find catharsis, acceptance and, maybe, some peace. It's pretty heavy going for a family film, but it's quite nice to see an effects-laden film actually have some real substance, and the themes of loss of a parent, fear, illness and death are worthy and perhaps necessary things for a younger audience to see. The real problem comes with the sheer number of them. While McDougall as Connor is really very capable of carrying most of this, writer Dowd seems to have decided that the appropriate number of potential troubles this unfortunate adolescent boy must face is all of them. (laughs) And it's not just McDougall but the film as a whole that suffers under the weight of so much misery. In its favour, A Monster Calls refuses to give simple answers to Connor's problems, and the morals of the stories are shades of grey and not absolutes. And in the end, it is undeniably powerful and affecting at times, even if it is a little overwrought. Story-wise, it's fairly slight. A lot of horrible things happening to Connor, and then the tree tells him these stories often in an animated form to help him make sense of this. So there's not really a lot of action happening, but it's more the way these mental troubles affect 
Connor. That's the basis of the film. Felicity Jones is solid in a surprisingly slight part, given the importance of her character. And Sigourney Weaver is fine, but is definitely limited in her range due to a clear effort to maintain an English accent. Visually, it works well. The grey, mundane, small town against the colourful animated worlds of the yew tree stories and the monstrous nature of the tree itself. Some of the film's tone and look brings up memories of Guillermo del Toro's Pan's Labyrinth and some very effective colour work and simple but key sequences from cinematographer Oscar Faura is sure to remain long in the memory, unlike a thousand more colourful but identical effects heavy adventures. I've been a little time poor for this, so I couldn't find a way to do it. It doesn't sound like it's going to be a particularly appealing package. It's the sort of thing from the trailer you think, that will probably be good, but it also looks like two hours of unrelenting misery. And I don't know, is that, is that the case, or is that a bit lighter? Misery's not quite the word I'd use. I know I, I did mention that because this poor kid, they throw everything about, you know, it might have been just enough that his mother was dying. But no, hmm. he's also a child of divorce. His father's on a different continent with a new family that he can't get to know, and then he treats him badly, and... Then he gets bullied at school and nobody seems to notice him at school. Mm. And then he hates his grandmother and she's distant. And so like one may have been enough. (laughs) All of them just seem so much. So yes, Adela has the potential for unrelenting misery. But I think because it's so visually distinctive, that helps a lot. The tales that the tree tells are done in an almost watercolour style animation. So that's separate from the rather mundane looking real life that he's in. And even just that visual break makes a big difference. Yeah. And then that, as uh, the imagination and the stories begin to encroach a little into his behaviour in real life. And it's at times a little shocking, but also there's a bit of humour in that. So that helps. It could probably do with a bit more humour, actually, just to leaven things. But it's it's not quite a rewarding watch, and it's not quite the two hours of misery that you <laughs> feel that it might be, Scott. And, well, if nothing else, there's not really enough films where you can say the tree has to carry the dialogue. Uh, <laughs> make it sound like you're not tripping on LSD. So that's that's something to go with. I think it was also, it sounds like we should have a face-off between <laughs> Liam Neeson's tree and Bane as he used the most incomprehensible uh, protagonist in a film. <laughs> oh, no, I guarantee you there's no... There is no um, contest here. It's Liam Neeson. <laughs> Part of me is thinking maybe it was just a cinema or something. The movie the sound wasn't set up. Everything else was okay in the film. It's just the tree characters. Yeah. So I think it's actually <laughs> a, a choice by the director to do that. But it's so, so, so low mm-hmm. that it really is very, very difficult to hear. Because there's like a double whammy of pitched Liam Neeson's voice down. And then it's just completely swamped by this kind of lava or rock or that sort of rumbly kind of seismic sound in the yeah. lower registers. And it's just it's so loud, it overpowers everything else and not straining to understand what he's saying. And this is a Scotsman listening to someone from Northern Ireland talking <laughs> plain English. You know, it's, that shouldn't be difficult. It's, <laughs> so it's, and if I can't hear it, you know, I wonder what other people are going to make of it. As I say, like, one thing it reminded me of was Pan's Labyrinth. Other than that, there's not so much I've seen that's like it. It's not in a long time. Right. And maybe, and it's so different because it's got Muppets and it's colourful and it's got songs and stuff, but the, the idea of the monsters and the coming of age and learning to overcome things, maybe they should think a little thematically, at least, of Labyrinth. Right. But other than that, there's not so much like it at all, but it's an interesting film. It's worth watching, but definitely that could be upsetting hmm. for really young kids. Not even so much because of the tones, uh, the, sorry, the themes. 
I think that sort of thing probably should be introduced to children at a fairly young age anyway, just to prime it. That's what happens in life, you know. Yeah. But it's just because the, the trees are rather ferocious and frightening creature when it appears. And it's always a kind of, at best, a caged animal later on. There's always mm-hmm. this sense of menace from it that's going to be a bit uncomfortable. But again, when I mean, everything's just had all the edges sanded off of it and it's all sugar-coated, it takes away from the impact of things, so... It's better to have it like this. Yeah, well, if you're telling me it's different from most other films, it's good enough for me to actually go and uh, give it a look at some point. Uh, yes. I'd be interested to know what you think, and hopefully you find it at least as enjoyable as I did. It's made the list. <laughs> it's a pretty substantial list now, though, isn't it, of stuff you've not yet caught up with that you meant to? Yes, yes. Yes, yes I have one of those too. It's <laughs> it's on a second thick notebook now, I think. It's so, <laughs> so many it. So I guess we shall crash on to Snowden. Oliver Stone has never met a conspiracy that he didn't like. So <laughs> it was only a matter of time before he covered an actual real one, rather than dangerous, misguided nonsense such as the JFK assassination. We all know who did that. A time-travelling Harambe in collusion with the reverse vampires and the Mulligan Foundation. I actually prefer the idea that it was JFK himself, but I suppose you base much of my favourite history on Red Dwarf. <laughs> no. <laughs> Citation, indeed. So here, Oliver Stone turns to the accounts of the Western government Omnisnooping, released a few years back with Jordan Gosev Levitt as Edward Snowden, the Omnisnoop enabler turned Omni whistleblower. This film shows how Snowden entered the USA's spy business in a variety of roles, during which he starts questioning the reach of the programmes that he's enacting, seemingly moving from a conservative to a liberal viewpoint along the way, a struggle which takes its toll on girlfriend Lindsay Mills, played by Shelley Woodley. This leads up to his pilfering of national secrets and leaking them to the media, represented here by Zachary Quinto's Glenn Greenwald, Tom Wilkinson's Ewan McGaskill and Melissa Leo's Laura Poitas, and also discovers uh, Stoden's subsequent flight from a US arrest warrant uh, and extradition warrants leading to him holding up in Russia. Now, at the risk of minimising the two and a quarter hours this runs through, that's pretty much it. And I do find it hard to believe that you've not already got the gist of what happens during the theoretically dramatic fight to freedom in Russia. That noted beacon of free speech and limited government overreach. This was, after all, reasonably big news not all that long ago. Also, if you have a brain in your head, and seeing as you're listening to the internet's most intelligent podcast, and think that's a safe assumption, you will already be aware of the horrors of universal surveillance that Snowden confirms are running in the world and the lack of oversight and all that jazz. What you may not be familiar with is Snowden's character, which I was rather hoping would be more vigorously examined in the film. It's mostly about his intellectual conflict between his belief in the liberties supposedly guaranteed by the Constitution and the ways they are circumvented, and very little is revealed about how Snowden came to change his mind. For example, it seems pretty clear as soon as Snowden first enters the service that these abuses are going on, and he actively helps make them worse for the majority of the film, but that's not questioned, analysed, or mentioned at all. And even as someone who feels that Snowden's on the right side of the debate, on whether he's a hero or a traitor, which is also barely mentioned, it's tough not to see this as more of a high geography rather than any serious attempt to capture Snowden's character. There are other issues with the film. Uh, Shailene Woodley in particular appears to have been written purely to whine in a roundly (laughs) underwritten role, and crucially it's just too damn long, and my attention had roundly wandered by the end of it, despite my usual regard for Joseph Gordon-Levitt. To be fair, none of the problems are the cast's fault, with everyone mentioned acquitting themselves well, along with some very fine supporting roles from the likes of Reese Evans and Nicolas Cage, and they all cover some 
very dry subject matter as well as they can. I would be a great deal more positive about this film if you chopped half an hour out of it, which seems quite possible without really significantly altering too much. And I wonder if the material would have been better in less credulous hands than Stone's. However, it's perfectly fine and probably earns a recommendation just from the civics standpoint alone, but I had hoped for a little bit more from the film, I'm afraid. Yes, it's it's okay. I enjoyed it well enough, but uh, I, it didn't really break any new grounds either in terms of what it's telling me about what actually happened in the Stone leaks or in really eludicating all that much about Stone's character. So arguably a bit of a missed opportunity. If somehow you don't know about all that stuff, then it's absolutely uh, essential viewing. But I think if you have you know, a recollection and read The Guardian a few years back, you've probably really got everything you're going to get out of Stone already. But I know that you liked this a little bit more than I did from the sound of it, because you did cover this in your a pick for your Films of the Year podcast. So. Yes, I can't disagree, and I don't want to disagree with more or less any of the points that you've made. Just that for whatever reason, I just enjoyed it more. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is very, very watchable. And that's a yes, large yes. part of it, I think. I mean, it's an interesting story. But yeah, your points about why he changed his mind when he did, and that not really being explored is certainly a very valid one because it's very easy to understand how he either he didn't have a conscience or managed to suppress it at the beginning when just remembering like basically he's a whiz kid Um, but by the time he was blowing the whistle he was only like 28 or something Um, Mm -hmm. and he'd had this massive career up to that point he'd been working at this high level for such a long time and you can see why maybe not think about that stuff earlier he's young he's intelligent he's enthusiastic and he just really cares in the beginning about the problem to be solved as opposed to why the problem's there in the first place that's quite easy to understand that it's just oh wow this it's like having new technology or just the, the thrill of writing his code and things without allowing himself to think too much about the consequences or the uses but yes why it then takes so long after that for him to grow this conscience and decide that it's wrong is yeah it's underexplored and that's a feeling and certainly Shailene Woodley's character she's deeply unlikable she's just there to moan as you say and I don't see the point of that character there at all really that's it I just I enjoyed the film the only real beef I have with it and I mentioned in our other podcast was that and this is maybe in this film is the point where he turns actually is that it's apparently perfectly okay for them to spy on everybody else on the planet it's only yeah. wrong when it's people from the united states yeah and that's probably the point of this film where it turns it's like oh no wait they're spying on us too it seems to almost be specifically him and his <laughs> girlfriend isn't it it's when it gets down to that level it's oh right this is what could be happening oh right and i don't know how much of that's uh just a, a tool of dramatization on stone's part or whether that's how it actually went down but mm-hmm. you know he, he seems to be presented he was clearly an intelligent person and the initial beats of the film where him talking about how he's just trying to protect his country all these kind of things and it's never really made clear how he changes his mind and it would mean well we should be protecting our country but not at this cost to our mm-hmm. liberties and there's no real no real examination of that at all uh, if it was it must be a flyaway line when his girlfriend shouting at him and must have missed it but yeah, it's not really well handled in terms of the, the Snowden character himself more his actions are well handled mm-hmm. in terms of how it's explained and shown 
that could be some very confusing and you know dry technical subject matter. And I think Stoller's credit that that all comes across very clearly in the film. I think that's, he does quite a good job of explaining those kind of technical details. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the actual humanity of it, it's a bit less clear cut. Uh, and certainly manages some nice tense moments as well, like the scene where. He's trying to sneak out the SD card or whatever he has with yeah, it's, him. It's the most tense Rubik's Cube scene I've seen in <laughs> quite some time, yeah. It's actually, that's pretty well handled, so it manages to build some tension there. But yeah, it's probably character is the bit where it's lacking. And it, it shouldn't hinge on him becoming a revelation, as you say, Scott, about it being him that's being spied on because he works for the CIA. <laughs> of course you're being spied on, you're in the CIA. I'm not sure that everybody knows that that's part of the job. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, as I said, it's the, the idea, and this is a United States film, but this has always been the case with this story in particular, but uh, similar stories too. It's, like, it's not bad if you're spying on everybody else on the planet. They don't have a right to privacy, but when a United States government starts doing it on themselves, oh no, that's bad and intolerable. <laughs> as opposed to, you know, just a pretty scummy thing to do to any people at all you know i'm not saying that you can't or you shouldn't have to investigate people who you have a genuine cause to think are a threat that seems legitimate that's police work but it's the blanket thing but that's all we can just blanket cover everybody but then when it becomes the united states oh no and now it's strong bad mm, bad 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 that's a broader political issue that i have rather than necessarily yeah. an issue with this <laughs> film though um this is just highlights that but for me, it's watchable just because of Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That was really enough for me, I think. I just find him a very, very engaging and watchable actor. And it's an interesting story, an interesting thought. And clearly, it's able to promote some discussion too. It's another good reason to watch something. Yeah. If there were a shorter cut, I wouldn't necessarily argue against it. But it didn't drag like some of other Oliver Stone films have done. And it's not barking mad like JFK is. Yeah. And I was counting the <laughs> seconds to you mentioning JFK. And I think I was wrong by about two and a half seconds, but I knew it would be very early on. <laughs> I like to get out of the way because I hate that film so much. <laughs> yes, I, I do recall. It's just, um, you have a bit of a bone to pick with that. Dire skeleton I could pull out of that <laughs> damn film. But yes, let's let's crash onwards. Let's uh, cover Hands of Stone then. Okay, well, due to computer errors, I lost the carefully prepared notes I'd made for this. Scott managed to give me a shortcut to reproducing those notes without taking much time. There's a punchy man and a trainer of punchy man and then the punchy man mm-hmm. punches the other men and he's the best punchy man. There we go. Next film. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest though, with a sporting biopic of a boxer, there's not an awful lot more to be said further than that. This is the story of the Panamanian boxing legend Roberto Duran, who had a career of more than three decades as a boxer. Mm. And it's a long, long time. And he was very good <laughs> it was basically but I don't know what else there is to say about this it's got Robert De Niro not being as completely <laughs> as Robert De Niro has been for most of the last 20 years yeah. Edgar Ramirez being a boxer it's so hard <laughs> to, and even when the story's interesting boxers tend not to be massively charismatic in film unless they're Muhammad Ali yeah because I think in real life they're not massively charismatic unless they're Muhammad Ali or possibly Chris Eubank and <laughs> I'm still eagerly awaiting the Chris Eubank <laughs> biopic oh dear you have to have the scene with the truck right oh. <laughs> anyway it's a perfectly serviceable film that tells the story of this young kid from Panama who has a real chip in his shoulder about the United States um, who is then trained by a man from the United States and makes his fame in the United States and 
that's sort of a, an undercurrent there's these issues with the United States and their problems with their ownership of the Panama Canal and the fact his father was an American and who abandoned him. But I struggle to say much more than that. It's a serviceable biopic. De Niro, as I say, is considerably more animated than he's been the most times and certainly more um, watchable than he was in his other recent boxing film, Grudge Match. The less said about that film, the better. <laughs> of the three great, oh, of the three Robert De Niro boxing films that would come to mind, this is definitely much closer to Raging Bull than it is to Grudge Match. <laughs> That's very much damning it with faint praise, I think, because <laughs> Grudge Match is so bad. Edgar Ramirez is pretty watchable and he's a bit more expressive when he can speak in his native language of Spanish than he was in The Girl on the Train when he was a bit more constrained by speaking in English for all of his scenes in that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, if you've seen a sporting biopic, you basically know how it's going to go. Rise, fall, rise again. It was a dark night rises, I think. (laughs) This is perfectly serviceable. I mean, my knowledge of and interest in boxing is pretty much zero. So I was, I didn't really know anything about Durante before this. And it did a, a reasonably good job of establishing his character. I think for once as a boxer, he's, he's probably got a bit more of a, a nice story arc to him. It's almost like it's kind of a rocky story, but this one's, you know, actually real as best as we can gather, assuming this this tells a more or less true story. And Durante seems charismatic enough a boxer to have this kind of treatment made on him. It covers a very small fraction of his career. It would be interesting to see something a bit more later. It actually would have been interesting to see a bit more of Bobby De Niro's character, who, you know, his kind of runs with the mob and all these kind of mm-hmm. little uh, side details that are thrown about as a, almost as a off-the-cuff statement that sounds like you could make a whole film about that itself. Uh, yeah, that was actually a kind of, it's a subplot I would like to have seen more of is quite infamously the Mafia basically ran boxing for probably yeah. from... The 19th century, the United States, yeah. and then Mafia, 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 HBO. So well, how did that happen? I mean, there was, there was a friction there and things and that. And then you have the inevitable introduction of Don King yeah. in there. And, but Don King is an interesting character. You know, yeah. it's like, sometimes you think he appears in boxing films just because, well, he's that guy with the crazy hair, right? But he's yeah. basically like a mafioso type guy anyway. Yeah. So, yes, there are interesting people in there that you would like a bit more of. Yeah, as, as to the focus itself, I think the Durante's story, as it's covered here, is serviceable and it has a, a nice arc. But, as you say, it's pretty much cookie-cutter stuff. You know, his, his uh, rise, fall, then redemption at the end. And it, it felt almost arbitrary, the way it was cut off. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, now he's zero again. But when, when you look up a, even a cursory web search afterwards, you realise that the guy kept going for years after the, this mm-hmm. film ends. And it'd be nice to see a bit more of that at least mentioned in it, but I suppose you've got to pick your pick your limits somewhere and these are as good as any. It makes for a absolutely serviceable sporting biopic and if that's the sort of thing you're in the mood for, this is absolutely fine. But it's difficult to get all that excited about it. I think in terms of it being a biopic, it's more successful than Ron Howard's Cinderella Man, which is Ron Howard has some of the same feelings as Steven Spielberg of making things incredibly yeah. maudlin and sentimental. However, Cinderella Man's a more entertaining film. Yeah. Even though it's probably less of a biopic, it was meant it was based on the real boxer as well. But it's if you're looking for something a bit more, I don't know, authentic, perhaps um, biographical, yeah. then yeah, this is closer. Although to be honest, for kind of to have some interest in boxing, the most interesting boxing film I've seen that isn't apart from maybe Ali, Muhammad Ali is a enduringly fascinating character and always has been mm. because he was so much bigger than boxing. He symbolised so many other things which made him fascinating. 
the most interesting box for I've seen apart from that. It's not the same as the best, because right. well, he still can't beat a better Rocky, but is a so docu- film where the robots punch each other. <laughs> yes, that's one. A documentary from Mexico saw the Edinburgh Film Festival years ago called Last Heroes of the Peninsula. Okay. That's about boxers who have sort of washed up, but were considered in their local area in the Yucatan to be heroes. And that sort of thing's more interesting, actually, because... If you ever see anything about boxing, they always like, we're trying to get young kids in and take them off the street, give some discipline. And everything about boxing I've ever seen mentions that. Yeah. But you see so often, it's like, I think maybe it's true. And that sort of film shows it. Whereas this one, it's more, it focuses on the celebrity more than the effect on people's lives, I think. Yeah. It's just a different take on things. I don't know why I'm this out comparing this to documentaries since it most assuredly is not. <laughs> but I think often the more interesting boxing stuff is the real stuff. And all of the features on boxing that were ever in Transworld Sport were similar right. to Heroes of the Peninsula and I'm pretty certain I have no longer got a point and I've just got <laughs> some, some kind of rabbit hole talking about things that are just related vaguely to the topic of the film yeah Hands of Stone it's not bad if you like sporting biopics watch it and I miss Transworld Sport Transworld Sport generally an interesting program like how you could make some really obscure Mongolian archery yeah. sports <laughs> seem genuinely fascinating uh, it's something a lot of other programs could really take a leaf out of their book on. A bit of Kabaddi now and again really livens things up. Sunday morning, Channel 4, Transworld Sport, then Kabaddi. <laughs> We've gone deep down our rabbit hole, Scott. Yeah, this is, <laughs> Maybe we should this return is, to films. Yeah, let's, let's, get, let's get back on track. Uh, the next film we're going to cover is called The Lobster. David, played by Corn Farrell's wife, leaves him for another man, which would ordinarily be upheaval enough in your life, but not in the dystopiaville that the lobster occurs in. He's visited by the authorities and carted off to a hotel where, he's told, he must find a suitable partner in 45 days or be turned into an animal of his choosing. Of course. While he's in this hotel, he makes a few friends, such as John C. Reilly's Lisping Man and Ben Wishaw's Limping Man, this film has a character list that reads like the bottom end of the Avengers headhunting list. They're all in the same situation, hoping to find a match, which in this world at least seems to boil down to finding someone that matches one superficial characteristic, such as limping or lisping or getting nosebleeds or being a complete sociopath. Sociopathy comes in handy for the evening entertainment at Odell, where the guests tool up with tranquilizer guns and go off hunting the loners, singletons living alone in the woods outside of this weird system. Bagging one of them allows the guest one extra day in the hotel to find their partner. David eventually winds up escaping to be amongst them after a disastrous attempt at pairing with aforementioned sociopath, but the loner's rules are no less strange. Romance is strictly forbidden, for the same reasons pairing up with is so heavily pushed in the rest of the society, which is to say, entirely arbitrarily. And David seems okay with that until he meets Rachel Weiss's short-sighted woman, whom he falls in love with. Their relationship <laughs> relationship develops in secret. Oh, but no, relationship. That sounds more entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually Leah Seru's loner leader catches on, leading to the events that we'll have to do as the climax. As you might have gathered, this is very far from a conventional narrative, and it's handled far from conventionally. It's treated as an absurdist, Kafka-esque black comedy, with everything very deliberately flat. Most obviously the dialogue and reading of it by the performers, but also the way that it's handled behind the camera, the muted colours and the, the flat framing. It's all very deliberate, perhaps, but to what 
to aim, I'm not completely sure. Um, if, as a quick swatch, other clicks' uh, reviews would suggest this is some sort of satire on dating culture, enabled or encouraged by online dating, then that's some pretty slender pickings. Um, the end result for me is something that was much more funny peculiar than funny haha. The incongruity of it all raised a few laughs, and there's some sharp writing and committed performances from a cast that, in general, I'm quite fond of. But for the most part of this film, I was just left a little bit confused over what I was aiming for. Now, any time I've looked at this year's upcoming slate of films, with its unyielding barrage of comic book flicks and unwarranted sequels, I've felt a real and enduring sense of dread and despair. Were you Fast and the Furious 8, mm-hmm. Saw 8, and the 13th, Friday the 13th film? Now, given that, I should be championing The Lobster as its unique, distinctive, and entirely unconventional film, the likes of which we really need to see more of in cinema. However, at the end of the day, I'm actually not really left with any strong opinions on The Lobster one way or to other. It's the sort of oddball experience that I would normally very much enjoy, but all I can really say about it is that it held my attention well enough for its running time, and I took nothing more from it other than a way to pass a couple of hours. For my part, at least, I'd still recommend giving this a chance purely based on its unconventionality, but I didn't really extract a great deal of joy from it. Drew, you've seen this and I'm sure I've heard you swear about it already, so (laughs) (laughs) what's your take on The Lobster? Oh, yes. First of all, I've become distracted by something you mentioned. I've now got this incredibly great visual image of the relationship of the sheep (laughs) um, wearing horn-drip glasses sitting behind a desk helping people with their love life. (laughs) <laughs> My head's a strange place sometimes, but I say sometimes, I mean always, obviously. Yes, I know, it was just so much lavish with praise at Cannes and other places, and I was really looking forward to this, and then I watched this, and I just got angry, <laughs> because I, I didn't honestly didn't know what it was trying to say. Yes, it's, and you said you've seen it suggested as a satire of online dating, which I don't particularly get, but just of a satire of relationships and, and culture in general, yes, I I can see that absolutely. It's the idea that society says that you have to be with someone, or if you're not, you're kind of weird. But then, if you're a singleton, as Bridget Jones would have put it, if you're in a group of other single people, then you become the enemy if you leave that group to start a relationship. And none of that's in any way obscured under levels or anything. That's just really on the surface there. It's like you're a group of people where you have to get into a relationship, or the group of people who think you have betrayed them if you are single, then come and join a couple and to be honest Bridget Jones did that considerably better yes and I know it's very very deliberate the very very flat delivery of every line yeah but it's intolerable <laughs> it's absolutely <laughs> tolerable it's not entertaining in any way I found this so hard to get through I mean sometimes that really sort of deadpan delivery can crack me up but in this oh no no I just I did not care for it at all in any way shape or form I just didn't think it had anything useful to say. I didn't think it um, was funny or entertaining or well-written. This film rubbed me the wrong way from the beginning and it never stopped rubbing me the wrong way. <laughs> Probably getting arrested for that, I think. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't a cuff for my own home, Scott. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yes, I see, I really, I see the satire and parodies trying to make, but I just didn't see it. And I just thought everybody in this was wasted. Because I know how funny Colin Farrell can be because in Bruges is spectacular. Yeah. I know how funny Olivia Coleman could be because of pretty much everything else Olivia Coleman's mm-hmm. ever done. Yeah. yeah. Rachel Vice, I think out of her depth here actually. I've never really seen her be particularly funny in anything. But in this well she fits in, I suppose, from that point of view, because nobody's funny in this. John C. Riley's wasted Ben Wheatley in this made me think very much more of the Ben Wheatley in 
perfume rather than the Ben Wheatley of James Bond. Ben Whishaw? Ben Whishaw, yes. Yeah. I've had that name stuck in my head, the director, Ben Wheatley. Yes, Ben yes. Whishaw. Yes, thank <laughs> you. But yes, um, well, Ben Whishaw can, or Ben Wheatley can get stuffed as well. For, for, yeah. uh, yes. Ironically, the guy from one of the Ben Wheatley films we were most fond of, the uh, field in England, uh, Michael Smiley, <laughs> is in this. And of course, Michael Smiley is quite an ironic name, yes. given the uh, lack of humour on display. I really like Michael Smiley, actually, but again, in this, I only had anything useful to do. It's, again, it's so deliberate, but for me, that particular approach just fell so flat. Ben Wishaw is very much the Ben Wishaw of Perfume and I do not thank them for making me think of Perfume because that was not a good film <laughs> and I recall that you hated that as well so I'm sorry for making yes. you think of that film as well it's experimental it's hugely experimental it's very very film festival and sometimes that works but in this case no it, it didn't I know I'm doing a pretty horrendous job of articulating why I hate <laughs> this film but I hate this film yeah it is clearly a, a, a very acquired taste and it's one of these ones I wonder if however way the stars aligned if you'd watched it in a somewhat different mood on a somewhat different day you might actually have got more from it it's not like I can disagree with anything that you're saying about it, it is particularly because it's barely what I was saying about it as well it just, it just <laughs> didn't annoy me quite as much as you it just kind of was a film that I watched and I don't think I'll watch it again I wonder if it might have been better if not everyone was so deadpan if some of the characters had been acting like you know normal human beings i don't know maybe i just didn't get a connect with this in any way because i didn't really have anything like this kind of experience with dating or anything like that all my friends seem to actually support me quite well about anything i do because they're my friends not enemies you know <laughs> i don't know um, yes. and i know and in terms of online dating i don't have a particularly jaundice view of that either because that's how i met my wife so worked out quite well for me so i'm all right jack yeah <laughs> yes I, um, <laughs> i'm quite on board with the whole online dating they do because for instance i know it worked for you and because you met your wife through online dating i met my girlfriend yeah. <laughs> it's a direct consequence so it's yeah. um i have no problem with it yeah i think i can't bring myself up to hate it or or to be honest even dislike this film uh, either either way if, if you forced me to pick one side of the fence i'd probably say i liked it more than i disliked it but you know in, in general it's still pretty much middle of the road for me um, i couldn't quite extract the, the joy that a lot of people got from it for that we're putting it on like your best film of the year lists uh, so it's a uh, Swing and a dunt for me, at least, if not quite a miss. I just revise my point a bit about. I think maybe I said I didn't see the online dating thing so much. I'm like, I think I'm all now. There's that whole bit about the system not allowing you to select certain things and sort of faking a profile more or less. And so, okay, that's yeah. in there, but I do stand by my point that it's more yes. about the idea of society in general pressuring people to be in a relationship yeah. rather than it being any particular type of way to bring that about. Yeah, and that's. Pretty slender satirical pickings, in my view. Yes, and mine. It's, it's this film, not for me. We'll mention that we're, there are dissenting opinions, of course. We mentioned uh, Stephen Nelson. That's at Scott Sactor on the Twitter. We probably mentioned this during the Films of the Year podcast as well, but he thinks that The Lobster is an original and dark satire that's a perfect antidote to modern dating culture. And he would choose to be a killer whale. You, if you've got to be something, it's as good a choice as any. Yes, uh, we can't quite agree with that one, but uh, of course your opinions are, are welcome and there's certainly no place to tell you otherwise. So we shall move on to our next film, which is L. Oliver Hooven. I think that's a least passable stab at the correct Dutch pronunciation, but so anglicised nowadays, everyone knows it's Paul Verhoeven, is not your run-of-the-mill bog-standard director. Whether they are a scathing satire of war and military fascism, or explorations of human nature, the media and corporate greed, musings on reality, or his own twist on film noir, and whether you like them or not, 
Paul Verhoeven films feel decidedly Paul Verhoevenly. <laughs> they are distinctive and usually filled with sex and or violence. And his latest and only his second film in a decade is no different. And that film is L, a rape, revenge, comedy of manners, horror, thriller, character, drama, black comedy. <laughs> because basically there was no way to narrow down exactly what genre this film fits into. L opens with a scene of a woman being raped in her Paris home while her cat watches unconcerned. Where this scene is somewhat different from many other similarly themed films is that the woman's response and the sounds she makes do more than a little to suggest that she may be finding something enjoyable in the experience. This is certainly a theory potentially given weight by her later behaviour. For example, while having sex with her lover and husband of her best friend, she lies almost corpse-like. That could be read as her feeling like an object in response to her partner's exhausting physical requests. It could be that she is deadened to the experience due to trauma, or it could be that she is recreating her attack. It's only one of several moments where the film raises uncomfortable questions, but provides no concrete or easy answers. After her attack, the woman, Michelle, played by Isabelle Huppert, cleans up, takes a bath and goes about her life as if nothing had happened. I suppose I was raped, she casually tells her friends at dinner, all of whom seem considerably more affected by the attack than Michelle, who, after previous bad experiences, refuses to go to the police. While Michelle carries on her complicated life as mother to an idiot son, daughter to a <laughs> vampish gigolo-loving mother, daughter of a notorious serial killer, and CEO of a video game company working on a game which involves a rape fantasy, the experience of the rape keeps butting in. And she does try to determine the identity of her attacker. But also she fantasizes about having revenge. But these fantasies evolve from a straightforward violent defense to something much darker and more complex. A power role reversal. While more closed minded reviewers have suggested the film is immoral, particularly those with very simplistic ideas of sexuality, a far more appropriate word is that used by the director himself to describe his film and particularly as heroin. Amoral. Morality isn't at the heart of Michelle's story. Character is, and this woman's roles as victim, or masochist, or avenger, the changes between these character roles are not expressed in moral terms. It's certainly an interesting film, and probably worth watching for Uper alone, but I find it difficult to say it's enjoyable. Now, for a film that is about rape, then that's okay. It can be interesting or compelling without being conventionally enjoyable. But the other portions are different. L is three films in one and Uper's excellent performance is necessary to anchor them together as otherwise the tone of whiplash could make the whole thing unwatchable. It's not even as if the individual pieces could stand on their own. While there's certainly humour in the comedy of manners portion and intrigue in discovering the identity of the attacker in a thriller core, the film has a singular lack of likeable or relatable characters, and the motivations of the central character in particular are opaque to me. It is, though, very well crafted and strongly directed. There's an argument to be made that this is Verhoeven's finest work, but I'm still not sure I'm on board with it, and I think I need to see it again. Just to quickly go back to what I said about the comedy bit, though, silly. There are intentional bits of tonal whiplash there where something will be so blackly comic and you will laugh and then find that laugh choking your throat a moment later with what happens or is mentioned. But I do very much recommend our listeners watching it at least once, however, partly for Uper's performance, as I previously mentioned, 
but also just because it's a really interesting film to talk about. Is it irresponsible? Is it misogynistic? Or is it about female empowerment? Is Verhoeven's blatant button pushing to prompt us to think about the psychology of victims in a different way? Or is it just to provoke a visceral response? Or is it something else entirely? And after just one viewing, every one of those possibilities more or less seems open to me. Just, it's really kind of echoing what you say. I mean, I normally don't like to review films until I've had at least a week to think about it, to let it kind of bed in and percolate around, which is why we're not covering La La Land in this episode. But uh, if you want a brief preview of that, go and see it. It's quite good. But for Elle, I watched this, I think, three days ago now, and I still actually don't really have the first clue what to think about it. Um, it's, very, it's difficult, but it's in a good way difficult. I mean, it's hugely challenging, and I think, mm-hmm. I, I suppose the first thing I say is I would recommend that everyone listening watch it. Mm-hmm. It's not easy or enjoyable, but it's a prime example of what film can do to make you actually change and challenge assumptions and change your outlook on certain things, and particularly the, the rape scene you've, and it's subsequent uh, echoes through her life is something that is if you're a, a refugee from sort of the, the 80s the 90s action cinema and exploitation films and all these kind of things you're, I'm so used to rape being casually thrown in as a motive for someone not normally the girl to go and get revenge on a group of people that is really quite strange seeing it used the way that it's used to influence motivations in this film mm-hmm. and it is so radically different from anything else I've seen on that basis it is not something that is just thrown in purely for shock value um, it is a very real complex and French way, way of putting something like this into a film I'm sure I read somewhere that Verhoeven said this was initially going to be uh, set in, uh, set in Baltimore the, or somewhere like that yeah, was in the it? US and he yeah. said that they decided to put it back yeah. in its native France because no American actress would have taken on such an amoral role. Probably silly, but maybe yeah. it plays more easily in France than anywhere else. Well, for better or worse, they've always seemed to have, certainly in, given that their mainstream cinema still is not really all that mainstream, if you know what I mean, yeah, compared to um, the, the, the mass market of Hollywood, uh, they've got a bit more leeway in portraying more realistic, I would say, sexual morality. The characters here are having affairs and a lot of French cinema, that kind of thing is not exactly portrayed as positive, but it's it's shown as something that happens in real life as, you know, it does, whereas it's uh, played a bit more simplistically in a lot of uh, American media. Yes, I think um, French cinema culture is generally more sophisticated than pretty much any other culture I'm aware of, actually. Uh, Yeah. And also there's the thing that I've always liked about French cinema and Italian cinema to a degree, but I'm considerably less familiar with that than France. But that's the thing that here it's a bit of a problem in the United States definitely is. It's just mm. sex at all. Um, yeah. The yeah. French are clever people who have realised, you know, that sex is A, good, generally. <laughs> let's not set this film aside, right? But A, good, B, enjoyable, C, natural, and that human bodies are things that we all have. Whereas in America, it's okay to have lots of blood and violence and people be murdered, but goodness gracious, you can't see a booby. Oh, no, no, that would be terrible. Think of the children. Yes, and you better not swear. Yes. That could um, cause real psychological damage. It's so upside down, and I've never understood that, whereas French film has always been comfortable with both the human body and what you do with the human body. Yeah. Um, it's, got, it's had things the right way around, and then it's violence is the thing that you want to not have if you can avoid it. <laughs> Yeah, um, in terms of L, I can only really reiterate what I said earlier. I think it's a, a really strong, powerful film, and everyone that's listening to this podcast should watch it. Yep. I can't really give you a great deal of explanation 
why or how I think that should do because I'm neither a sociologist or enough of a film <laughs> film scholar to really uh, give you those points. But uh, it would be interesting to, as you say, watch this at least another once somewhere down the line and, and revisit this and see what we're still talking about it at the end of the year and see if it's a uh, really holds up as being a contender or being something special or if it is actually just exploitative. I don't think it is. I think this is uh, challenging some sort of long-held assumptions and I, I always like to see that kind of thing in cinema. Yes, it's not enjoyable in the conventional sense of things, but I no. think it's actually a fairly important film and uh, certainly something that we should all be seeing. And then after that, you can go and watch Robocop again just to see that scene where Ed 209 really brutalises that guy with the... It comes because that's a bit simpler. That's more my level, really. Um, I don't know. But yes, L's great. Robocop, really, if you get into it, it's not all that simple. Considerably simpler than this, yes, but between us, we've probably said this eight times now, but everybody should watch it for cinematic experience and education, if nothing else. Cinematic edification. Isabelle Huppert recently got the Golden Globe for Best Actress, and boy, was that deserved. Really, and really... Even if the rest of the film didn't have enough interest, I think it'd be worth it for her alone. Mm. It's you mentioned the rape too, and this is different from so many films. Exactly, you see, it's got the, it's like the, like it's like so many country songs in the United States are based on this idea too, as well as films that, that and all over the world to the films that somebody's girlfriend or wife was raped, and that's you go off to get revenge, or yeah. it's the the one thing that women can always be threatened with in a film, but it's such a, it's almost such a banal thing in that way. It's like, well, so yeah. women also, that's her danger. And yes, in the real world, I appreciate that's a great danger. Yeah. Uh, please do not think I'm downplaying that at all. It's much that the way it's portrayed in film is so yeah, mundane and banal. It's like, oh yeah, well, we can't really think of anything interesting to write here. Uh, well, maybe the guy could rape her or threaten to rape her, and I'll do. And that, that's their yeah. characterization. Whereas here, it's its so much more complex. And it's portrayed so differently, too, because the opening of this film is black, um, just completely black screen, and then you just hear someone having sex. And that's where the ambiguity of whether maybe she's enjoying it or not is you're not sure from that very opening scene. But there's none of the usual build up to a scene like that of yeah. like either some man has been snubbed or something and then he gets what he wants anyway or the woman hears someone in the house or someone falling out in the street or something it just black screen and cuts to the middle of the act and that's how the film opens yeah and that that in itself is so different from how it's handled in most other films and it's a very powerful opening oh yes yes and then yeah at the same time despite the fact that that's how the film opens and that that's obviously a running theme through throughout the film that that act of rape. It doesn't really define the character. No, and it doesn't even really define the film, which is kind of remarkable. Yeah, <laughs> and honestly, I think the more I talk about the film, the more I like it, and I like it even just for the fact that it's making me want to talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> really, it's, it's such an interesting conversation piece. This film, and technically, it's so well made. It's so well acted, and it's the issues I have with it, if any, are more about I am not sure about some of the characters, and certainly character motivations. Still not sure whether that's deliberate or not, or whether they're badly written. I mean, for example... Yeah, yeah um, the, the, the girlfriend of the uh, idiot son is... Yeah, she's just, she's a harpy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's just this horrible harden. Uh, she, she's kind of pantomime villain, like, and then the son's quite 
thinly written. He's just, he's a bit of a cuckold really, isn't he? Almost literally. And then you have her friend whose husband she's sleeping with mm-hmm. and some of her th- things, I don't want to spoil what happens, but some of the things she does, like, really? She's going to be a bit more annoyed about that. Yeah. <laughs> the things that happen to her character. So I really don't know quite what to think of that. And then when you've got the central character who, because of things that happened in her past, she doesn't go to the, the police at first. That I understand. But later on, when she doesn't go to the police, despite there being physical evidence and things, I think maybe they're taking that a bit too far. But I don't know, maybe I'm missing the point about why she's not doing that. I don't know. But yes, yeah, it's... Uh, it's not so much in the last year that I can remember it's made me think quite so much. Yeah, I suppose the interesting thing is that we're thinking about aspects of it that are in no way that, well, not the majority of the film's runtime is concerned with this. If you, if, I suppose if you broke it down, there's a lot of subplots that, if I'm being hi- hypercritical, I suppose, only seem to be there to expand the running time into a film <laughs> uh, length rather than just being one hour, if you know what I mean. I don't think his, the character of the son and the, that little relationship with the, the Harridan has any actual purpose or worth in, in the film as a whole. It's just something there to pass the time. It's almost as though that's been used as a spacer, just to give you some time to think about what's going on in the rest of the film. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of this film that is inserted deliberately as just empty calorie filler for you to digest the rest of what's going on in the film. And I, I don't know if that's a flaw or if it's actually a genius on Verhoeven's part. <laughs> Yeah, I'm repeating myself. It's it's definitely a recommendation from me and um, certainly one of the, the most thought-provoking and distinctive films I've seen in a good long while. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly going to watch it again. I'm not sure how long I'm going to give it. I think maybe something like half a year, I think, would be quite good. I'll watch it again in the summer. Yeah. Um, and maybe even after I've done that, we can revisit it in a future intermission podcast. Yes. If you maybe you've done the same career, you can maybe catch up on that point too, just to see whether I feel any different down the line. But yeah, it's a must watch um, for so many reasons. Yeah. And yes, I mean, silly apart because of that opening in particular, that some of it's going to be uncomfortable for people to watch. But you don't want to always be just having comfort in cinema. Uh, using cinema as escapism is okay. Sometimes you need that wee bit of acid in there just to make everything else better, even by comparison. Yes, it's one of the most thought-provoking things I've seen in quite a while. Okay, so talking of tonal whiplash as I was, Star Wars, Scott, (laughs) has returned to a galaxy far, far away, which Disney has determined we are going to do approximately 400 times in the next couple of decades, Mm -hmm. I think. Yes. Right, Star Wars Rogue One. Uh, The march of the Disney Star Wars franchise continues with this side story, which is a direct prequel to A New Hope that ends about five minutes before that film starts, timeline-wise. It's the tale of the quest to get a hold of the Death Star plans, making it an exceptionally loose adaptation of the first level of the 1995 (laughs) Dark Forces video game on PC and Mac. Don't play the PlayStation port, though, that's kind of crappy. I thought you were going to say it was a very loose adaptation of the opening scroll for episode four, (laughs) but... (laughs) <laughs> Rogue One mainly concerns itself with Felicity Jones's Jin Erso, who finds herself busted out of an Imperial prison camp by rebel intelligence officer Cassian Endor, played by Diego Luna, and his reprogrammed Imperial droid K2SO, laconically voiced by Alan Tudyk. Jin's hauled in front of Mon Mothma and other assorted bigwigs, and strong-armed into helping them make contact with the exiled extremist Saw Gerrera, played by Forrest Whitaker, who happens to be the guy who raised Jin after her 
mother was killed off and weapons designer father Galen, Mads Mickelson, taken by the Empire. Now, word has reached the Alliance of a message that Galen has smuggled out to Guerrera and they must know the contents and they hope that Jin can give them a foot in the door. So, off they go, trying to contact Guerrera on some Imperial-occupied backwater pursued by Imperial forces headed by the director of unusually large weapons installations, Orson Krennic, Ben Mendelsohn, and the weapon that Galen has designed, which of course is the Death Star. This fully armed and operational battle station shows off its hitherto unseen love tap, alt-fire mode, on said backwater planet, but not before Jin hears her father's message. He's in a small vulnerability in design that, well, I'll assume you've seen A New Hope, so let's skip over all of that. However, to exploit this, they will need to get a hold of the Death Star plans, which will entail breaking into a very high-security Imperial Archives facility, which sounds like a suicide mission, and at this point I'm going to warn you that we're going to spoil the hell out of this film, so if you are the two, possibly four people (laughs) on the planet that have any interest in Star Wars and haven't seen the film, I advise you to just uh, basically stop this podcast now. So, last call? Last call? Okay. It sounds like a suicide mission, and it is a suicide mission. Everybody dies. But they do manage to transmit the plans to a waiting blockade runner replete with princess and a small bin-shaped droid. And so ends the factual part of this review, and I shall now convince, henceforth, with the bloviation. <laughs> Rogue One is one of the most poorly written big-budget films I've seen in a very long time. <laughs> it is a very boring film for a number of reasons, apart from Phoenix being a very irritating film for a number of reasons. Here's a few of each. Uh, <laughs> primarily, the reason I find it boring is sadly they've borrowed from their Marvel stablemates obsession with throwing loads and loads of characters into a film without having the first idea about what to do with any of them. It's bad enough that your lead character sleepbox into suddenly becoming the most committed rebel of them all because otherwise there's no bridge to the last act. But the rest of the cast barely have a character, let alone character motivations. Diego Luna's normally a dependable hand but here he's saddled with a character that's supposed to be ruthless and also sympathetic, but the underwritten, monotonic performance makes him a bland non-entity, which I suppose marries well with Felicity Jones's equally characterless turn. Also, why must all of the female leads in Star Wars films speak in clipped, received pronunciation tones? You're acting against a space Mexican. I assume other accents were castable. <laughs> when perhaps the most charismatic performance in your film comes from a mildly amusing, sarcastic robot, perhaps you should be rethinking this sort of thing. And as for the rest of the gang, well, let's just say this. They could all be written out of the film with either no change to the script or very minimal changes to the script. Now, does that sound like a solid basis for a narrative? <laughs> Particular mention must be made of Donnie Yen and Wang Jiang's roles, which appear to be inserted because, firstly, we must appeal to the Chinese market, and secondly, because although there's no reason to have a Jedi in this film, but we want a Jedi in this film, we'll just put a Jedi in this film, but not call him a Jedi. Now, you may think I'm being cynical, but not half as cynical as the people that wrote him into this script. Those two characters are basically... Obi-Wan Kenobi droids. It's R2-D2 and C-3PO <laughs> with a bit of Jedi stuck together. Yeah. I mean, ironically, um, despite their obviously parachuted nature in the script, they're probably better realised than most of the rest of them and certainly have a bit more of a human relationship with each other than the rest of the cast managed to display, but still, they're entirely just bolt-ons to the main plot. I mean, when you get to the end of it, what is Donnie Yen's character called upon to do? Hit a switch. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Uh, um, anyway, uh, again, this showcases Garth Edwards, uh, who is the director of this film, his career-long problem with characters, as we're told multiple times uh, in the early going about what a badass Forest Furnishings character is, leading you to expect <laughs> that he's going to play some... Oh, I'll take away a moment to hear what you just said there. <laughs> 
Thank you, that jingles in my head all night. I've not heard that in 20 years, but well done. Yeah, but I was expecting that he was going to play some strong, pivotal role in the film. I mean, you were told multiple times what a badass he is, but more fool me what he does. He mumbles a little bit, and then, despite ample opportunity, does not flee from an oncoming wave of destruction for no reason whatsoever. None. And then he says the sort of line that you would normally spout off when you were uh, going to make a heroic sacrifice to um, buy the character some time to escape or something, but he doesn't do that. All he's going to do is stay and get exploded. (laughs) (laughs) So, Scott... In the great tradition of really dumb names in Star Wars, he's called Saw Guerrera, and that means warrior, albeit female warrior, in Spanish. So obviously he's important <laughs> because his name's Saw Warrior. I'm told he does something useful in one of the cartoon series or something, <laughs> but I'm not watching that because I'm a grown-ass man. Yeah, so this script is plagued throughout with horrendous character and plot issues, and it seems that rather than spend any time addressing any of them, it has been decided instead to just litter the film with nods and Easter eggs relating to the original trilogy in an orgy of lazy fan service. I think the point I realised that this was going to be a film primarily targeted at 33 to 38 year old man children <laughs> was when we walked past them two boys from the cantina scene at uh, A New Hope. That drove me absolutely crazy. I was just already that point I was thinking oh the fan service is doing my head in and yes. then yes I can be a nerdy geeky kind of person but I did have to look these up but finally Ponda Baba because all Star Wars names are stupid <laughs> Ponda Baba and Dr. Cornelius Evazan and this Dr. Cornelius is not an ape um, but the two characters are very famously Luke confronts in the cantina in Mos Eisley in Star Wars hmm. and I have the death sentence on 12 systems like well, of course they're in this film. Why wouldn't they be? Because it's an entire galaxy that happens in one town. <laughs> yeah, uh, to me, it just shows that it's not secure enough in its own little world. It has to keep constantly reminding you that, no, really, I am part of a Star Wars franchise. Please, please love me. And it's just quite obnoxious. Uh, if it had any identity or charm of its own, it wouldn't be so noticeable. But this film just uses the franchise as a crutch, and it's really annoying. In the wake of this film, some have started asking questions about the future of actors in this brave new world of CGI resurrection technology. I would answer these questions with a few of my own, namely, are you blind? (laughs) Are you going to special screenings where Vaseline is stopped upon your eyeballs upon entry? Are you unfamiliar with humans and how they look and act? Are you smoking crack? Is exactly what I said. I said that about a film we talked about not so long ago too. For exactly the same reason. It's not convincing at all. <laughs> Terrifying. Uh, yeah, uh, so yes, please please finish and I'll have my own wee rant afterwards. I was curious about this. I mean, the tech on display it does not seem any better than the dead-eyed virtual Kevin Spacey from that Call of Duty game a few years back, and that was before I upgraded my graphics card. To be honest, it's not much better than the terrifying dead-eyed floaty-heady Jeff Bridges from Tron Legacy. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody still has nightmares about that one, right? Yeah, and I saw John Knoll, uh, your technical effects bod, on this was interviewed a couple of days back, I think, and he, he had this. Uh, let's see if I still got it because he made a he made a really great point. Knoll says there are people that have said quite vehemently that it looks terrible and it looks like a video game, and I will assert that this is not the case. And that is the extent of his argument for it. Well, well then, um, and okay. I can't, I'm quite convinced by that, yes. It didn't look absolutely dreadful because you've said that it didn't. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm convinced I am set to write Scott because I thought that it looked like a video game. Um, but, but apparently <laughs> I am wrong because yes. he says it doesn't look like a video game. 
Okay. Thank you, John Dole, for opening my eyes and apparently scooping them out <laughs> so I can agree with you. I mean, I would barely, just barely have accepted the uh, pseudo-Carrie Fisher monstrosity at the end of this. Oh, you mean the vinyl doll? <laughs> yes, the uh, the love doll version of young Carrie Fisher. The wipe clean version of Princess Leia, right? <laughs> yes, uh, I might just about have accepted this before, of course, her tragic death of a couple of weeks back, which you can't really hold them responsible for. I'm sure they don't have crystal balls. But really, doing the stunt with Peter Digi Cushing as Crown North Tarkin... Peter Pin Cushing. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. I'm not sorry at all, actually. <laughs> the strange thing is, he's not a plot-critical character, but he's just a really heavily featured one. And that's a brave decision. But I wonder who looked at this tech demo and thought that this pallid waxwork automaton was good enough to splash on multiplex screens and he hoped to get the cataract surgery that they apparently need. Well, let's get off the crack. Stop. Put, put the pipe down. Stop smoking the crack. It's not good for you. It's just baffling to me that anyone found this acceptable. The only positive thing I can say about it is that it managed to really get my uh, personal peak or perhaps trough of the uncanny valley effect. So, yeah, thanks for that, Disney. So, between this and The Force Awakens, the recycling of content with recycled digital actors shows a worrying trend towards backward-looking navel-gazing for the Star Wars films, which means that we may nominally be getting a new movie every year, but just one that's picking over the bones of all the previous work. I had previously mocked George Lucas's notion that the Star Wars universe was exclusively about Darth Vader's story arc, but actually... On current evidence, he might be right. Well, that's because of the decisions all those people are making to make it only about Darth Vader, as opposed <laughs> to thinking it's meant to be an entire galaxy um, with a republic of a thousand generations, or a thousand years, depending on which version of the George Lucas films you watch, because he can't make yeah. up his own mind. But <laughs> with a thousand different systems, but no, it all happens in four planets with eight different <laughs> characters spread out yeah. over them. If I'm going to give it some plaudits, I suppose I should. Darth Vader is perhaps the only returning character that's handled correctly in very short action scenes, which does join up with the wider action scenes. Gareth Edwards, for his faults, can shoot action quite well. Um, The whole kind of assault at the end is very competently shot, and it's as good a battle scene as you've seen in Star Wars, ever, actually. It's perhaps the only redeeming feature of the movie. Pretty explosions and all, but it's very difficult to hear about them, given the solace puppets that carry out the action. So for a franchise that's banking on nostalgia, Rogue One was at least more successful in triggering that for me than The Force Awakens was. Tellingly, uh, not for any of the films, <laughs> or even the novels, but for the video games. Video games which did the comic relief robot shtick better, such as the Knights of the Old Republic, and games where the space battles were far more engaging when you actually got to control the X-Wings yourself, such as, you know, TIE Fighter, X-Wing, all that kind of stuff. And they also tended to have more defined and likeable characters also. So, as mentioned earlier, I'm under no illusions that anyone with a passing interest in this hasn't seen it already, but I would still recommend against watching Rogue One. For me, almost as bad as Captain America Civil War. First of all, I think even the, well, I think especially the Lego Star Wars video games are considerably more entertaining than most Star Wars films have been in a long time. (laughs) That said, and I basically agree almost entirely with everything you've said, yeah, I enjoyed Rogue One. (laughs) Yeah, which... There's some sort of mad cognitive dissonance going on because that makes no sense because everything you say is right and I still was entertained by it. Maybe it's because it's not The Force Awakens because The Force Awakens, <laughs> while I enjoyed it more the second time I watched it, not so long ago, it's not the same thing as saying I enjoyed it because <laughs> The Force Awakens bothers me a lot. And while this film has the same ridiculous level of fan service that The Force Awakens has, 
at least it's not the same film over again. It is a different film, a different story and different characters. Well, to a degree. Anyway, <laughs> but yes, the fan service is a thing that really bothered me. And again, going back to my point, Scott, about it meant to be this huge, varied universe. And the extended universe books at least tried to explore that a little. I mean, they're often terrible. They were yes. usually terrible. But um, mm. the case need to get something interesting. And at least they were trying to like go to different planets and have different races and different people. Just something that wasn't the same four planets with the same eight characters. Yeah. And... Yeah, because the Force Awakens certainly didn't manage that. It's like, what do we have here? This planet's called Jakku, but it looks just like Tatooine. It sure, it's not, it's not yeah. Tatooine, but it looks exactly like Tatooine. At least three yeah. other films have been said. No, it's, it's not. You should... Okay, okay, it's not Tatooine, okay. Shh. But oh, there's just so much ridiculous fan service. I and mean, even from the beginning, uh, near the beginning, you find out that the Death Star isn't powered by, you know, some sort of large nuclear reactor or some or fission reactor or some fusion reactor or something like that no the big weapon of the death star is powered by kyber crystals which for people who know star wars lore know that that was originally what the plot of original star wars was meant to be it eventually became morphed into what powers a lightsaber and yes i know that i know these things so i'm a nerd too but it doesn't mean i like seeing them repeated constantly <laughs> the original Thing about Star Wars was there was no Death Star anything. It was about search for this galactic holy grail called the Kyber Crystal. So instead of coming up with something new, they've stuck in this name into Rogue One. <laughs> and then they have Wampas, which as far as we're aware, are a rather stupid ice creature living on one moon, far, far away from anywhere else. Suddenly a pack animal in the middle of the city was <laughs> carrying pack for the stormtroopers because yes let's just reuse everything then there's the thing we also mentioned honda baba and dr cornelius you crazy ape um <laughs> i love his toffee cape <laughs> and there's a nerdy reference and nobody's just going to get scott <laughs> so yes it's just incessant fan service which bothers me because i i found diego luna more watchable in this than you did but certainly not anything like as watchable as diego luna normally is yeah. Diego Luna is very very entertaining and again also I liked Felicity Jones I found her watchable but all of the other great actors in this are just really wasted like Mads Mikkelsen in particular who's I don't know just the most mundane person you've ever seen it's like uh, yeah um, I'll go and work for you you hide uh, I'm building the Death Star okay I, I, I'm only pretending on this and it seems at a flat level all the way through it yeah, I thought it was a bit perfunctory in Doctor Strange, but that looks <laughs> widely ranged compared to his performance in this film. Okay, yeah, Alan Tudyk is that droid, quite entertaining as he usually is. But in Star Wars is once again relying on these robot characters for comic relief. It's like, it's never a good sign. No. Yeah, fan service, first big beef. And still, despite all this, I'm quite enjoying it. Even though, as my girlfriend said to me after it, though, I was like, Eh, all the Star Wars films are more or less the same film and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah they're, they're tremendously samey this is by far the most enjoyable one I've seen since Return of the Jedi but there is a, a definite sameness to them I will say though for this film there is a bold move making the central conceit about a bureaucrat determined to see that he gets appropriate credit for his work <laughs> um, though talking of bureaucracy and stuff given what happens in the phantom menace or rather what doesn't happen in the phantom menace then that's not um <laughs> unprecedented for star wars but it's strange like ben mendelson's largely his character motivation is to make sure nobody steals his credit for creating yes. the death star but the other thing 
the, the one thing I want to talk about you've already mentioned is Grand Moff Tarkin. <laughs> people are smoking crack. It's awful. And I have two really big issues with this. I and mean, one's actually more important than the other. But the first one is just, it looks awful. It's, it's yeah, terrible. It really does. I'm <laughs> struggling not to just string together a string of expletives right now because it's appalling. <laughs> if it were a video game, it looked pretty fantastic, actually. It's not a video game, it's a film. And it's the most unnatural looking thing I've seen in ages. It doesn't move naturally. And I'm definitely saying it and not he. It, it doesn't move naturally. It doesn't look natural. The light on it's wrong. The animation is really weird. It, it moves kind of choppily. Yeah. Uh, it's terrible. And anybody who thinks that is convincing, I really don't ever want to meet. Because you've got really <laughs> disturbing ideas of what humans look like. Because I assure you, it's not this. The second thing, it's an issue that I know lots of other people have, and it's been an issue for me since a chocolate advert, actually, of all yeah. things, is the ethical concerns. Now, this... I mean, it's perhaps less of an issue in this film because this was using a digitally created actor. I can't put enough quotation marks around actor there, but uh, using a digitally created actor to reprise a role that he had already done. So while he didn't get to choose to do that role, it's maybe not so bad. But it's the whole precedent here of having a an actor who's now dead but use his likeness in something. And I think that's a, it's a dangerous road to go down. It's start of a slippery slope. Yeah, uh, Peter Knoll addressed this as well. And he, what he said was that he thinks they weren't doing anything that I think Peter Cushing would have objected to. It was done with great a deal of affection and care. We know that Cushing was proud of his involvement in Star Wars and he said as much and he regretted that he'd never got a chance to be in another Star Wars film because Lucas had killed off the character. But I don't know how you square that with something that just seems to have come out. I don't know exactly how correct it is given it's just going as we're recording, but Disney appear to have confirmed that they're not going to use a digital Carrie Fisher in any of their upcoming films because that would be insensitive. <laughs> and I don't know at which point you say, well, what is the statute of limitations on sensitive uh, for this? Because <laughs> for me, it seems pretty black and white. If it's wrong to do Carrie Fisher, like now, to get you out of a plot hole, it's wrong to do it for <laughs> Peter Cushing now. I don't I don't <laughs> think that time really factors into this decision. I think it's just morally incorrect. I don't know. I think it can, because at what point does grave defilement become archaeology? But <laughs> that's only <laughs> a much, much longer time scale than we're talking about here. Yes. Although, weirdly enough, not in Guanajuato, because <laughs> Grave Defilement has become museum exhibit in the Museum of Mummies there in about 30 years. Which um, <laughs> creeped me out, quite frankly, as much as it was interesting. But that's a hell of a tangent to avoid any more rabbit holes that stick to the point at hand. So about Kabaddi then? <laughs> Again, for instance, let's disregard the fact that it was terrible, it was badly done, but the Fast and the Furious film where Paul Walker died, maybe using CGI recreation to finish that when it's a film that clearly the actor had already done that, hmm. that actually doesn't bother me at all i think that's the actor had made the decision to be in this obviously yeah. he wasn't expecting to die he had to finish his film okay that. <laughs> although in that instance it was so bad you could probably just, just got his brother with a mask on to play and it would have been well, any less convincing I think what they did, but then they didn't just they forgot to actually add any processing afterwards but, <laughs> yes. um, but that gets a pass for me i don't have any ethical concerns about that actually because he'd made the decision to be in that film that's okay i think that's legitimate uh, and you were saying about, oh, well, obviously we did it with respect. But, well, that's okay then if you did it with respect. You didn't get any permission though, did you? <laughs> yes. And they said that, I read just today, that for Peter Cushing, they'd got permission from Peter Cushing's estate. Yeah. Well, that's nice, but are Peter Cushing's estate Peter Cushing? 
<laughs> no, then they're not relevant. I mean, for things like copyright and licensing and the state, okay, that's that's just the way the world works. But for actually using a likeness, no. I find it deeply troubling. And where it bothers me most is just like where this leads to. And I mentioned a chocolate advert earlier. There was an advert for Galaxy Chocolate. I don't know, it's a good time, five or six years ago now, I think, where they recreated Audrey Hepburn. And it's about a thousand times more convincing than this film is actually. Well, it has a sort of technical look to it. It's actually, as a human being, it's a thousand times more effective than they managed the Grand Morph Tarkin, which ought not to be possible given the rate at which these technologies advance. But it's that idea of using someone's likeness. And if then something as big as Rogue One starts making use of it, then it's going to become more popular and more accepted. And I have such a big issue with it because what if you suddenly put something in something? I mean, because I had. I always think about this as a chocolate advert. But what if Audrey Hepburn didn't like chocolate? Simply simple as that. Or thought that maybe junk food like chocolate was actually bad for people's health. Or she mm. didn't. I know if Galaxy, who's Galaxy is made by, but like you know, a massive company like Nestle who have had sort of bad controversies in the past over various things. Maybe she wouldn't mm. work for a company like that. You know, being a, yeah. a UN and goodwill ambassador and things like that. So you start having the potential of putting people in things that they wouldn't support or endorse but you're effectively getting their endorsement from beyond the grave by doing this and you think oh it's just a star wars film but what if you get a film in the next couple of years where it's a pro neoconservative film based something very trumpish maybe and then you put someone in who would never have um, supported this but then you have this cartoon in it changes people's legacy it changes what they think and basically you just don't have the right because you didn't get their permission I don't know how we get mm. from this um, stupid, forgettable piece of fluff full of its silly wampas and things and ponda baba. Doobadoobu, blabba laba, plundu babu. It's the film that your baby will enjoy watching. <laughs> and I don't know how we managed to get from that to like deep ethical concerns about digital actors, but I think it's really because of the size of this film and the fact that Carrie Fisher has just died too and apparently her films her scenes have been filmed for episode 8 but if they change their mind in a year's time because they mm. need a scene I am not going to be surprised and then suddenly you've got these couple of massive films making so much money doing this with other characters and you're like oh yeah then you can start seeing it everywhere and then it becomes misused and I, I really have big reservations about that and it's my biggest problem with this film actually it's not it's even bigger than the fact that it's just terrible um, (laughs) the idea of where this could go and it's it's already earned a billion dollars so it's people Mm. are going to be aware of this and they're going to want it and uh yes i i worry about that but um back to your silly space opera (laughs) just to lighten things for a moment i don't disagree a single thing you said i just found it more entertaining possibly because i went in with such low expectations Maybe because mm. for all the stupid character names, nothing's quite so stupid as Snoke. <laughs> or maybe just because it's not a complete retread of episode four and a bit of Empire Strikes Back again. But or a bit yeah, of, yeah I, I found it reasonably entertaining. I just found the fan service infuriating. Just try a bit more inventiveness. And the whole idea of this set up as a, a massive, varied universe. And you've got, oh, no, we'll just keep reusing the same stuff. Yeah. <sighs> 
Yeah, I made the critical mistake of getting my hopes up a little bit when everyone was explaining breathlessly how this was uh, breaking new ground for the franchise and how it was the first uh, Star Wars film that feels like a war film and all that nonsense. And I didn't get much of that at all. You what? Yeah, because people are saying, you know, because things like, you know, Cassie Nander, he shoots a guy in the back rather than help him and such like that. And it's just, uh, But he doesn't have any kind of character arc at all. So I can't really invest in it. I mean, I, I, I do, however, worry what the effect this had on kids because Star Wars is, of course, a franchise designed to sell toys to kids. And if you're going to watch this as a kid, I don't think this is really what you'd want to see. I mean, you want to see a film with space wizards with their laser swords. Yeah. And, and what you get is something that's boring and has all the main characters getting brutally killed. Well, if it goes to something like, um, crowd pleasing Diego Luna's character again no one compare him I know you particularly and me more and more nowadays not so enamoured anymore of the original trilogy no uh, but <laughs> and if you disregard uh, what, what's actually associated with the whole Greedo shot first thing but they take a character like Han Solo the original characters were so much better written they were characters yeah because yeah. you have Han Solo who is a scoundrel basically right and he's you don't know what he's smuggling for Jabba. I've said people assume that it's drugs, but there's lots of things you can smuggle because lots of things are illegal in different places for different reasons. So, but he's selling on the it's like grey area morally, but you get the idea that he, this is an interesting guy. He's a better person than he really wants to be. Yeah. And he's kind of fighting against that himself, I think. And then also he, he does go on this journey. He's this ruthless guy who is killing the bounty hunter in a bar. And more than anything else, by the way, that whole Guido shot at first and it drives everybody crazy legitimately. People talk about how that sets up his moral journey. Well, yeah, also, but the character just told him he's going to kill him. Yeah. Over my <laughs> dead body. Yes, I've been looking forward to this a long time. As he's just said, I'm going to murder you. So of course he's going to shoot yeah. first. But anyway, but then yeah, this character is better than he wants to be. Um, and he goes on this journey, becomes a hero, makes friends and things. Okay. And you can see why these things change. He, he meets these people and he doesn't really care about their cause, but turns out he finds friends and then he gets involved and then he realises that he can be a better person. Yada, yada, yada. Diego Luna's character is like this ruthless guy who's murdering informants. So hmm. he makes him, a, makes him a scumbag and then suddenly he's soft-hearted because the script demanded it and then goes <laughs> yeah. back to being apparently ruthless again. Like, yeah, that, that doesn't play. You've got you've shown absolutely nothing about why this character would change like that. Yeah, and I, I didn't get any sense of any sensible character motivation for anyone in this film. Oh, apart from Ben Mendelsohn, surely. It's like, yes. wait a minute, <laughs> creepy digital man's trying to take my credit. I've created it, damn it. Yeah, that, that aside, actually, <laughs> depressingly, um, everyone else, I have no idea what they're doing or why they were doing it. Okay, some of them, yeah, I, I could almost explain away because they're space wizards, because they do. <laughs> the Jedi boy, who's not a Jedi, but apparently is a Jedi. Like, fine, okay, he, he's guided by the Force, he, and the Force is still the ways of okay. the Force, so Jedi then. No. Yeah, and, and Jedi. <laughs> ah, no, 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 it's not Jedi. It's completely different. <laughs> okay. Everyone else, I, I don't know why they're there or what they're doing. I don't know why I was supposed to care about Saw Gerrera. I don't know why he died the way he did. I don't know why the point of having the Imperial um, shuttle pilot. He seems like someone who could easily have been written out in one line of dialogue. I don't think he's of any use whatsoever and he didn't have any particular journey or anything to go on and uh, yeah everyone in the film just is boundly underserved by what's been served to them it's a film where there's no characters to care about no one has a character arc because they don't have a character it's just uh, 
sadly enough, I do probably agree that it is the most enjoyable <laughs> Star Wars film since uh, Jedi, but it's still rubbish. <laughs> uh, I don't know, it depresses me. I did wind up watching this again just before we recorded, just to make sure that I'm not missing anything. But no, it's, it's there's nothing to miss. There's very little in this film. It looks really pretty in terms of its action scenes. Um, is perhaps not quite the right term for it, but I think it does have some really effective action scenes. And if the rest of the film was just trying to be a dumb action film the way that the last, what, half hour of this film is set up to be, uh, with both like this really intense... Uh, ground battle and the space battle as well I would probably have caught it a bit more slack if this had been more obvious about being a dumb action film mm-hmm. I think that would have worked much better than this attempt at being oh we need to show the horrors of war and the gritty underside of the rebellion except you don't actually do any of that you just kind of hint at it in places and with a bunch of protagonists that I really could not give the first about yeah it just does, does not work for me i'm now entirely soured on this franchise and i i've no doubt i will watch the next one because well it's there and you can't really do anything you can't really avoid it in cinema in december it scares everything else out of the multiplexes so you'll watch it no because just out of sheer lack of other options but when i do i will be disappointed again and wish i'd spent my time doing anything else again so for me it's just I agree with almost everything you said, but I just enjoyed it more and for reasons I am not clear on. <laughs> but it's, yeah, I don't know. I keep coming back to this, but the fan service thing really niggled to me. It's like, could you just try something new? Yeah. I don't know if that's a J.J. Abrams thing because he has the same problem with his Star Trek reboot verse Oh, I'm sure this is a studio thing. But, I'm sure um, this is I said, I was, Disney. I'm so yeah. I don't even think it's a, I was going to say, I don't think it's a J.J. Abrams thing or a studio thing. I think it's a Star Wars fan thing. I think it's what a lot of people want. Well, I, mean, I think that ties back to the studio, because if the studio was wanting to make risks and push this out in different directions, it could, but it's not going to do that, oh, yeah, given the amount of Disney, money that's spent on it. Disney don't do risks. They're going to try and keep people as happy as possible, and if that is just circling the drain with the same references that everyone else has put through for the rest of it then that, that's what they'll do if that as long as that keeps making money and th- this took a ton of money so they'll, they'll keep doing this fan service stuff where they just put in things that have no real reason to be there i mean even things like that that battle at the end where there's 80 80s walking all about the place it's like why would you have those there if you were trying to defend your own base that you control you wouldn't park tanks everywhere <laughs> that's what tank- they are they're a big the assault tanks, weapons yeah. they're useless in terms of defense <laughs> Oh, it's another thing that was in the previous film, so you can put it in and people go, I remember that because that was in the previous film. <laughs> I'm a true fan. I'm connected to this universe, even though all it's doing is taking my money away in the form of See, toys. Here's <laughs> the thing, though, is Star Wars gets to you. It's because it's, yeah, cause it's such a part of popular culture now and has been since before we were born. Yeah. But we have spent probably four times as long talking about this terrible Star Wars film. Well, terrible for you, possibly entertaining for me, but terrible in many ways in Star Wars film then we did about L, which we both agree is one of the most interesting films we've seen in ages yes. it gets to you like that and I resent it <laughs> <laughs> uh, well that's that's as good a reason as any to stop talking about it I think, yes, I uh, think so. we've circled the drain as much as that uh, some feedback on our Twitters uh, Films and Swearing uh, the Films and Swearing podcast at FAS Podcast on Twitter I'm going to redact this slightly because <laughs> they are the Films and Swearing podcast and we are technically trying to keep our clean rating on the iTunes but they basically said they want more Donnie Yen and Zhang Wen in the Star Wars universe they were a favourite of Rogue One 
I actually don't necessarily disagree with that. They did seem to be the only characters that had some form of a character. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think they were wildly underserved with the material that they were given. I guess that will take us to the end of this podcast. Um, we will return on the first with a look at the films of David Fincher. We'd like to take a moment just to thank anyone that's uh, interacting with us on the Twitters or the Facebook and who's liking on there. Thanks first to Louis Kong on Twitter at Louis underscore Kong who is congratulating us for somehow managing to make some kind of value out of Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and such like for our last episode. So thanks very much for that. Also shout out to Matt Toller at mtoller on Twitter who has not reported back but you said he was going to find out which faction of FUDs on film was correct about the assassin and yes we'd like to see who wins that tie break for us so yes I report back on that if you if you get the chance he didn't tag us but he said in his later tweet I checked that he thought the assassin was a very beautiful film but he had absolutely no idea what was going on that's more or less what we said I think about it <laughs> Fair enough. So yes, um, we would love to hear from you, so please keep talking to us on Twitter, that's at FudsOnFilm, or Facebook, that's facebook.com slash FudsOnFilm, or you can even email us, podcast at FudsOnFilm.com. So as I say, we'll be back with you on the first, assuming that we've all survived, and until then, I will bid you adieu, and I'm sure my good friend Drew Tavendale will do so also. Fairly well. Ta-ta! <laughs>